0: 1. Acts chapter 1 verses 1 through 11. This morning we are considering the phrase of the Apostles' Creed that states that Christ ascended into heaven. Christ ascended into heaven. And there are two explicit passages in Scripture that speak to Christ's ascension. The end of Luke and then the beginning of Acts. So Acts chapter 1 verses 1 through 11. Please pay careful attention, for this is God's holy and inspired word to you this morning. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up, after he had given command to the Holy Spirit, to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his sufferings by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. This Jesus, who is taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. The grass withers and the flower fades. The word of our God stands forever. Well, please turn in your uh, your order of worship to the confessional reading section this morning. We are confessing together Lord's Day 18, question and answers 46 through 49. Lord's Day 18, question and answers 46 through 49. I will read the question, if you would please respond by reciting the answer. So question 46 asks, what do you mean by saying he ascended to heaven? That Christ, while his disciples watched, was taken up from the earth in 47 asks, But isn't Christ with us until the end of the world as he promised us? Christ is true man and true God. In his human nature, Christ is not now on earth. But in his divinity, majesty, grace, and spirit, he is never absent from us. Question 48 asks, If his humanity is not present wherever his divinity is, then aren't the two natures of Christ separated from each other? Certainly not. Since divinity is not limited and is present everywhere, it is evident that Christ's divinity is surely beyond the bounds of the humanity that has been taken on, but at the same time, His divinity is in and remains personally united to His humanity. Question 49 asks, How does Christ's ascension to heaven benefit us?
1: First, He is our
0: advocate in heaven in the presence of His Father. Second, we have our own flesh in heaven as a sure pledge that Christ our head will also take us his members up to himself third he sends his spirit to us on earth as a corresponding pledge by the Spirit's power we seek not earthly things but the things above where Christ is sitting at God's right hand as you know we uh, there are three main sections to this catechism so, boys and girls, what, uh, what section, or what, what are these three sections? On. Yes, and which section are we currently in? Race. Race, yes. And we're specifically in the section, uh, or we're in the section, the gray section, but more specifically, we're in the subsection of true faith. What is true faith? What are the three elements of true faith? Knowledge knowledge, assent, and trust, and the content of faith. Lily? Apostles' Creed. Apostles' Creed. Apostles' Creed. So we, True faith calls us to know certain things, assent to certain things, meaning we have to actually know that these things are true. And then lastly, we need to personally trust in these things for ourselves. And the Apostles' Creed is a faithful articulation of those things that we need to know, assent to, and trust. In. Right now, we are... And so we've been walking through every article of the Apostles' Creed, and today we are considering the article that says that Christ ascended into heaven. Christ ascended into heaven. Now if you were here with us last week, you may notice that the Catechism devoted one question to the resurrection, and four questions to the ascension. It may seem a bit odd. If we may have revert, reversed that if we were writing a catechism. One question to the resurrection, four questions to the ascension. Now part of this is due to the historical context of the Reformation in the 16th century in which this document was written and we'll consider some of those controversies that surrounded this Lord's Day. But nevertheless, one, one thing that we learn from the fact that the catechism devotes four question answers to the ascension is that this is a doctrine that is taught in more than just two passages of Scripture. And I mentioned there's only two passages in Scripture that I explicitly refer to Christ's ascension. And the Luke, beginning of Acts, doesn't get much air time explicitly, but implicitly it permeates all of Scripture. Because when you look at the beginning of Scripture, you see that God's original destiny for all mankind was for mankind to enter this seventh-day Sabbath rest. That was the goal of mankind. Not to exist forever in the Garden of Eden, not to exist forever in this present world, but to ascend to his seventh-day Sabbath rest. Well, of course, you know, Adam disobeyed, and he failed to enter that rest for himself and all his posterity. But as we continue to read on in the Old Testament, one thing that we see is that this unbelieving world attempts to ascend to that seventh-day Sabbath rest by their own efforts. So think of Genesis 11, the Tower of Babylon. Mankind, civilization, trying to ascend to the heights of God, ascend beyond this present, fallen, evil age. Or Isaiah chapter 14 records what the king of Babylon was saying in his heart. In Isaiah chapter 14, Verses 13-15, through the king of Babylon says in his heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. And then God responds and says, But you are brought down to Sheol, to the far reaches of the pit. King of Babylon tried to ascend beyond this present evil age, but ironically, he descended to the far reaches of sheol. So in scripture, we are presented with this idea that mankind desires attempts to ascend beyond this present creation, this fallen creation. The only difference is whether they seek to do this by their own efforts or by faith in Christ. And so, one thing that the big point that we learn from this Lord's Day is that Christ, in his ascension, opened up the door to the age to come. So the only way that we have hope of ascending beyond this present evil age is through Christ and his ascension on our behalf. So Christ's ascension opens up the door to this age to come, to God's seventh-day Sabbath rest. Day. Over and over in the Old Testament, we learned that mankind, by their own effort, cannot ascend on their own. But they're humbled and brought low when they try to do so. And you'll see that this Lord's Day uh, is broken down in a very um, uh, easy to follow way. So questions 46 through 48 can be thought of as the exposition of this doctrine. And then question answer 49 is the application of this doctrine. You can tell that this catechism was meant to be uh, preached upon and taught in the church. So, again, the first three question answers are the exposition of Christ's ascension, and then question answer 49 is the benefit. So question answer 46 teaches us that Christ's ascension was literal, meaning he actually did physically leave this earth. A pretty basic point, but it's important to confess: Christ and His human nature actually left this earth. He bodily was taken up from earth into heaven. So what we read in Acts chapter one, verses nine through eleven. And when he had heard these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, "Men of Galilee." Why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who is taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. These people, uh, disciples, aren't to be surprised. What's happening before their eyes is actually happening. The human nature of Christ is leading them. They were with Christ in a bodily manner, and now they won't be with Christ in a bodily manner. Christ literally, physically left this earth and ascended to heaven. This tells us that Christ's humanity can't be everywhere present. Either he's here on earth, or he's up in heaven. Well, in question answer 47, it asks us, well, if Christ really did leave this earth and go into heaven, then how can scripture at the same time say that Christ will be with us to the very end of the ages. Remember Matthew 28, when Jesus is issuing the Great Commission to his disciples, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing, teaching. And he says, behold, I will be with you to the very end of the age. Behold, I will be with you until the very end of the age. And then right after this, he leaves them and goes into heaven. So how can Christ be both present with us and absent from us at the same time? That's what question and answer forty-seven is is getting at. And how does the what do, what do, what does the answer say for us? How would you summarize the answer? How can Christ be both absent from us and present with us at the same time? was making a division between the two natures of Christ, yes. And so we have to realize that Christ is a person. We're persons. We have personhood. And persons have natures. So we, I as a person, have a human nature. Christ as a person has a human nature and a divine nature. So both of these natures belong to the person of Jesus Christ. And so in so far, as we're thinking about the human nature of Christ, he's absent from us. But insofar as we are speaking to the divine nature, he's present among us. Boys and girls, you might see a diagram on your note sheet, where it's like a less than sign, where you have a person of Jesus Christ, and this person then has both a human nature and a divine nature. And throughout the Gospels, we see this person of Jesus Christ acting according to his human nature sometimes, where he's hungry and tired, Sorrowful, But then we also see him acting according to his divine nature other times. When he is healing people, performing miracles. When he is uh, knowing the thoughts and intentions of, of mankind. So he acts according to both natures. So the person of Christ, so far as a, he's a human, is absent from us. But insofar as he is the divine son of God, he's everywhere present. And most particularly in our catechism, it says that Christ is present with us in his divinity. Again, is a statement that, of course, Christ is God, and therefore God, one of God's attributes, is that He's omnipresent, that we're present. the Catechism also says that Christ is present with us in grace. In grace. The means of grace. Our belief in the means of grace is that when the word is properly preached, the sacraments are rightly administered, Christ is present in a special way. Of course, Christ is present all the time, but Christ is present in a special way when the means of grace are purely administered. Sort of like the difference between calling someone on the phone and FaceTiming someone. You have that extra connection when you can actually see the person's face rather than just hearing their voice. So Christ is present in the means of grace. We also see that Christ is present in the Spirit. The Holy Spirit. The Spirit who unites us to Christ. The Christ in His human nature is absent from us, but in His divinity, majesty, grace, and spirit, He is always with us. That's how we make sense of those two seemingly contradictory promises, where we see that Christ is going to be with us to the end of the age, and that Christ is going to be absent from us, and won't we'll return to the Second Coming. We have to make that distinction between His two natures. Well, in a very logical manner, question answer 48, is essentially saying, okay, if that's what you believe about Christ, that he has a human nature and a divine nature, and his human nature is absent from us, the human nature is in heaven, and he won't be coming again to this earth until the second coming, and his divine nature is everywhere present, are you essentially saying there's two Christs? Are you dividing the natures of Christ? So you have one Christ in heaven, and the other Christ is zipping around this earth, everywhere present. And so it's here that we are brought into part of the historical context of this Lord's Day. So one of the reasons why there are four questions devoted to the Ascension is because in the Reformation there was some hotly contested debates over the Lord's Supper. Ironically enough, one's view of the Ascension will necessarily lead you to a particular view of the Lord's Supper. One's view of the Ascension will necessarily lead you to a particular view of the Lord's Supper. And so, because the Reformation was quickly divided on the nature of the Lord's Supper, the debate moved to the ascension as well and two natures of Christ. So this was actually a Lutheran critique of the Reformed Church that the Catechism is responding to in question and answer for the days. So real briefly, to let you in on a little bit of of what was going on in the 16th century, in the Reformation, both the Reformed and the Lutheran Lutheran Church, believed and were united that in the Lord's Supper, the human nature of Christ was present. So in the Reformation, both, both the, 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 the Reformed Church and the Lutheran Church, the mainstream Reformed Church and the Lutheran Church, they believed together that the human nature of Christ was present when we partake of communion. They both recognized Jesus' words when he instituted the supper when he said this, right, this bread is my body and this cup is my blood. And they recognized the Apostle Paul's interpretation of Jesus' words when he says in 1 Corinthians 10 that the, the, the bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? And the cup which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? So they both recognized that in the supper, we are having a participation, a communion with the human nature of Christ. Of course, divine nature is present everywhere, but particularly in the supper, we're having participation with the human nature of Christ. That wasn't that, that, that was wrong for them. Now, where they um, parted ways was over the question of how. How do we have communion with the human nature of Christ? That's that, that was the area that was hotly debated and contested. How is the human nature present in the Lord's Supper? So the Lutheran position was that Christ ascended to heaven in his human nature, but his human nature possessed a divine quality, the quality of omnipresence. The human nature of Christ could be in more than one place at one time. And so the way that the human nature of Christ is present in in the communion elements is not by us going up, but by Christ coming down. So when the, 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 the bread and the wine are consecrated, the human nature of Christ envelopes the bread and the wine. So yes, we are still have, eating bread and wine, but we're also, also, in some sense, participating in the actual body and blood of Christ. The human nature of Christ comes down and envelopes the elements. Well, the Reforms say, in response to that, echoing Hebrews chapter two where the author says that Christ in his human nature was like us in every way, sin accepted. Now basic to a human nature, even a glorified human nature, is that they have to be locally present, meaning they can only be in one place at one time. They can't be in more than one place at the same time. Basic to a human nature, even a glorified nature, is that we can only be in one place. And so, if we believe that Christ is indeed like us in every way, sin accepted, then it should follow that Christ, even in his glorified form, can only be in one place at one time in his human nature. And thus, the way the Reform said that Christ was present in the human nature is not by the human nature of Christ coming down, but we rise up and have communion with Christ in heaven. And you might think, that sounds crazy. <laughs> but that's exactly what the Apostle Paul says. Recall Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1-10. through 10. Pastor, we probably all are familiar with. You were dead in your sins and trespasses and then you once walked. Then verse 4, but God, in his great mercy, made you alive together in Christ and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places. Past tense. We've been raised and seated with Christ in the heavenly places. Paul is saying that when we are united to Christ in our regeneration, when we're born again, We are, in a very real sense, raised and seated with Christ in the heavenly places. And so, in communion, our union with Christ is being strengthened. So, John Calvin refers to communion as a time in which we are being more and more united to the risen Christ. Of course, we belong, body and soul, life and death to Jesus Christ every day of the week. But in communion, that union is being strengthened as we have participation with the very human nature of Christ through the Spirit as we're raised up. So, that's why in our form, we say, lift up your hearts. We respond and say, we lift them up to the Lord. It's denoting our belief that Christ doesn't come down, but we go up and have communion with Christ in heaven. Thus, you can see how one's view of the Lord's Supper necessarily relates to our understanding of the Ascension. Can Christ's human nature be everywhere present? Or, this... Christ, human nature, have to be only in one place at one time. How you answer that question will then impact your view of, of the subject. And particularly in question answer 48, you notice the language that's used here. That the divine nature exists beyond the bounds of the human nature. Meaning that the divine nature can be in places that the human nature is not. And this doesn't mean that we're dividing the two natures. It's still the person of Jesus Christ who is operating according to to, to both natures. So so this concludes the the exposition of the ascension. And then, again, in a very helpful way, question answer 49, the catechism applies this doctrine for us. It gives us three benefits, three benefits, for why this, this, this doctrine is significant for us in our everyday life. How does it comfort us? Remember, this catechism is all about comfort, assurance, how does it comfort us? And so what is the first benefit that we read in answer 49? Oh, I mean, sorry, what is the first benefit, sorry? What is the first benefit that we receive? Sorry, advocate. Advocate, yes, he's our advocate before the presence of his Father in heaven. He's our advocate. Romans chapter eight, verse 34, Paul says, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God and who is indeed interceding for us. So Paul says that we have a mediator at the right hand of God who is interceding for us, praying for us, defending our cause uh, before the Father. And the result of that is Paul saying who is to condemn. No condemnation can stick against you if you have Christ as your advocate. Whether those uh, condemnations come from your own conscience, which is which is a testimony that the, the law of God is written upon your heart, whether those condemnations come from, from, from the law, from the evil one, they can't stick because you have an intercessor who's pleading your cause before the Father. Who is the condemned? We have Christ interceding for us. So Christ is our advocate before the Father. An advocate is one who Defends or supports a mission or a cause. Many lawyers are, are, are advocates in a certain sense. And so God is holy and we're sinful. We continue to be sinful even as believers. And so how can we continue to have a relationship with the holy God when we continue to be sinful? Well, Christ is in the business of advocating on our behalf that we belong in the family of God even though we continue to sin. But his defense is not that we are somehow holy in ourselves. His defense is not saying, well, so-and-so really had a good week this week and you take it easy now. No, Jesus' defense is that we are holy in Him. just as we considered it this morning. The reason why we can stand with an uplifted chin and await the Second Coming is because we've been dressed in Christ's good works, Christ's righteousness. the so Christ our advocate before the Father in Heaven. Well, what's the second benefit that we receive? Pledge about our resurrection. Yes. We have our own flesh in heaven as a pledge. Sure pledge that Christ, our head, will also take us as members up to himself. So here the Catechism is is referring to a common analogy the Apostle Paul uses to refer to the church. uh, Head and our body. A body which is made up of a head and its members. So boys and girls, of course, it's obvious to us that you have pants, you have elbows, you have knees, you have feet, you have a head. All of these body parts belong to your body. So if I were to ask you, I want your head to be in that corner, but I want your feet to be over there at the same time. Impossible, right? Unless you somehow get rid of your feet, separate them from your body. You can't. Your body, is a whole, and therefore wherever one part of your body goes, the rest of your body goes. In a similar way, because we are connected to Christ, we are members of his body, if Christ, our head, is in heaven, then that means we as his members will necessarily be there as well. Because we're connected. Because that train illustration that I shared last week. We have this union with Christ, and so wherever he is, we will one day be. But it's even stronger than that, as I just mentioned. It's not just that where he is, we will one day be, but where he is, we are in a real sense there now. We have our flesh in heaven. How? Well, through the Spirit. Remember Paul says, Ephesians 2, you've been raised seated with Christ, or Paul in Colossians 3, if then you've been raised with Christ, it's reality, it's our identity. We have been raised with Christ. Insofar as we belong to him, body and soul, life and death. What's this third benefit that we have? St. Temptation. This is upon the Spirit. Right? The Spirit. He sends His Spirit to us on earth as a corresponding pledge. By the Spirit's power we seek not earthly things, but the things above where Christ is sitting at God's right hand. So the Spirit is given to us as a a pledge. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. Paul says that the Spirit is the guarantee of our inheritance, the down payment of our inheritance. Or as Paul says in Colossians 3, which I just mentioned, he says, if then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above and set your minds on the things that are above. Meaning if your identity is that you've been raised with Christ, then you should live according to that identity. That's the logic of Paul's argument. If you've been raised, then live like it. Set your minds on the things that are above, Seek the things that are above. Live according to this new creation ethic. That's what Paul is saying. He says, the Spirit who, who produces this union with Christ, who both guarantees that we will fully be where He one day is, and we are in one sense there now, through that union with Christ. So remember, remember that this is in the context of true faith. Boys and girls, these are the things that you are called to know, assent to, but trust in personally. You're called to trust that Christ left this earth for you. To reserve a room in heaven for you, personally. Know, assent to trust in these things for yourself, personally. And next week, we will consider what we... Uh, Confess when Christ comes again to uh, judge the living and the dead. And it's hoping it would somehow work out so that it coincides with our morning passes, but didn't quite make it. But let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give thanks for uh, your word. We give thanks for these truths that have been handed down to us from generation to generation. And uh, we thank you for the good news of Christ's ascension into heaven, that he has indeed opened up the door to this age to come so that we can. Truly believe with firm confidence that this is not our hope.